from Hollywood is rated LGBT Radio, starring your host, Rob Watson! Good morning, good afternoon, good evening to any of our listeners, whenever and however you are listening to our program. You have reached Rated LGBT Radio, and I am your host, Rob Watson. Um, we have a great show for you today with uh, someone who has been around and seen it, it all, basically, and been involved in so many incredibly important facets of not only LGBTQ advocacy, but um, government life itself. And um, we can't wait to talk to him. His name is Brian K. Bond. He is the new executive director of PFLAG. And PFLAG, in case you didn't know, was one of the very first, and, and it is now one of the largest, organizations for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer people. Um, Brian took its helm in January. So um, he's uh, the new visionary on the block there. We're going to find out what is going on with PFLAG, his vision for that um, organization. But also, um, Brian was a key Obama administration official um, in the Obama administration. And uh, so he's been on the inside there, uh, knows how that all works, and I'm sure has opinions on how it is working or more to the point not working now um, he served as the coalition's director for climate against or climate action campaign so he's apart from lgbtq issues he is certainly um, well versed in climate change and the issues that are happening there and not to mention he is a has been a big mover and shaker with the um, Democratic National Convention itself. And so um, I'm sure will provide us great insight into the whole election cycle and uh, his views on what is happening in that arena. So um, I'm, I think the amazing thing here is going to be what we can actually pack in in one short hour, but we're going to certainly try. And with that, I'd like to bring on my illustrious co-host, Brody Levesque. Brody, welcome to the show. Hey, Rob. Good morning, good afternoon, and hello to our listeners out there. So the number one thing that has got everybody's attention, both inside and outside of the LGBTQI plus community, is the coronavirus. The president yesterday announced the formation of a task force headed by Vice President um, Mike Pence, and uh, I love going, it. I, know, I love. I, I, I love that you almost forgot his name. Who? So much for sounding like the much storied newsman that apparently people think I am. The, the the real problem with Pence, perfectly legitimate here about this heading up this task force, um, is just the fact that when he was uh, governor of Indiana, you know, he laid the groundwork for what became 
almost a pandemic in his own state because he was so busy running around closing Planned Parenthood clinics and defunding them. Um, and as a direct result of that, some of the Planned Parent uh, clinics, uh, one of them in particular that he shut down, uh, was one of the only places where those residents in that part of Indiana could get testing. So as a direct result, you know, it just, it, the virus did what the virus did and it spread, particularly in communities uh, that are greatly underserved, and that, of course, is communities of color, the black community and the Latino community in particular. So it, it was just, uh, you know, ridiculous, um, you know, to put Pence in charge of this, you know, critically important, you know, task force. And this, this is outside of the fact that the administration has been downplaying uh, this outbreak, even as the World Health Organization and other governments have been raising alarms about this. And the Chinese government is just now finally getting a handle uh, on the outbreak. They had actually suppressed information in their own media and from their own people initially, and now suddenly they've jumped on board with everybody else. Right now we have about 3,000 deaths uh, we are looking at the potential pandemic. Uh, we had a situation in Northern California where uh, doctors at the University of California, Davis, uh, discovered they had a patient, that uh, they're not exactly sure how this patient was infected. And that, you know, is rather problematic. Right. Um, government so, officials in California so are concerned. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I've got some questions for you. Don't we have a Surgeon General in this country? Do we not have that office anymore? No, we actually do have, yeah, the Surgeon General of the United States is also responsible for the uh, Public Health Service uh, and oversees, of course, the Centers for Disease Control and other important functions But in government. The, the problem is, is that the Trump administration has, um, quite frankly, badly damaged the infrastructure uh, for a great deal of the agencies that do the work on this. Uh, and in some cases, he's actually diverted funding uh, to his precious wall on the border. Uh, some of that funding would have been allocated to CDC specifically for situations like the coronavirus. And as I started to say, officials in California are becoming alarmed, mainly because of the huge, huge, huge homeless populations in their urban areas, particularly Los Angeles County, San Francisco, and of course, San Diego. So this is becoming very problematic. Um, and so this has got everybody's attention. And, you know, um, that's just one of those things, Rob. The other thing was I got um, I got no I got a notification today that my colleague and friend Kate Sozin at New Next Now Logo TV already wrote this up, but the Williams Institute uh, blasted out the fact that we have about roughly 378,000 trans citizens, okay, who more than likely would be eligible to vote in the 2020 general election, but are more than likely to have problems at the polls uh, because they don't have the ID that's reflecting their name and or gender. And 81,000 of that 378,000 total live in states who have some of the strictest ID laws on the books, Alabama, Georgia, Indiana, Kansas, Mississippi, right. Tennessee, Virginia, and Wisconsin. So, you know, it's it's becoming, you know, a real issue there. And and the other thing that crested while we're on the trans topic uh, is we had yet even more draconian um, anti-trans legislation put through uh, in Alabama. Uh, theirs is even more onerous because now it's 
classifying any help by a health care provider towards parents or a trans kid uh, as felonies. So if a, if a doctor prescribes, let's say, a hormone blocker, felony, if they um, have any inclination that they're going to help assist in um, type of uh, like a transitional surgery, which is um, referred to as top or bottom surgery, yeah, felony. Um, even if they don't report it, that, you know, in school authorities in Alabama, that, you know, kids are dressing in opposite gender clothing or the parents are apparently okay with it. Now we've got even more felonies involved. Um, and, you know, as we've discussed on the show repeatedly over the last two months, we've just been buried under these. Um, and, uh, you know, one of the organizations that uh, my colleagues and I have discovered responsible for this is uh, Project Blitz. Uh, which works in conjunction and hand-in-hand with the Alliance Defending Freedom, very anti-gay uh, gay law group out of Scottsdale, Arizona. And, of course, the Heritage Foundation in Washington helps underwrite it with, you know, PAC money and things like that. And our dear friend, Ryan T. Anderson at Heritage Foundation, who's about as close as they get, you know, keeps boarding out this suit of science. And we just keep having this pile on of bills. And then we've discovered that... Um, ALEC, which is a, is a group that the uh, Koch brothers founded uh, and fund to help write, you know, conservative, right-leaning legislation, has also been involved with Project Blitz and some of these legislative efforts. So yeah, it's just been, you know, one of those situations where we're sitting back and going, you know, hello. Now, granted, some of the bills have been killed, uh, but uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that there's going to be an end to it. And then we caught word a couple right. of days ago uh, in Missouri. But, this but, is not. Yeah, go ahead. But Brian. all all of all of the bills have been killed so far, right? I mean, no bill has progressed on um, any no, of these. The Alabama, yet. the no, the Alabama bill had progressed. That's worrisome. That one, that one made it through, yep. and it looks like Kentucky's is going to get shifted through. And then in Missouri, we've got a lawmaker who's pushing a bill that would make it easier for parents to sue schools if their children are subjected to anything LGBTQ. It's kind of like the Russian, you know, <laughs> you know, don't say gay law that they right. So anyway, so that's that's kind of a brief thumbnail sketch of uh, the fun and games on my desk this morning. Well, um, before we bring our guest on, um, I do want to remind listeners that we are brought to you by our sponsor, the L.A. Blade and uh, Brody, I think you have some information from our sponsor this morning. Absolutely. This week in Los Angeles played. Voter turnout is critical to not only the presidential race, but the down ballot races in key congressional districts, especially in California. And because of the fact that the Williams Institute uh, published a study last October that said there was only about 7% of LGBT voters that are actually registered to vote, and there's like 21% who are not. Uh, Los Angeles Blade examines how critical that will be. Um, also, uh, we have a profile written by the Washington Blades, Chris Blade, uh, Chris Johnson in the Yellow Blade, uh, based uh, with complaints from conservative talk uh, radio host Rush Limbaugh about being too gay, and LGBTQ activists on the other side who's saying he's not gay enough. Pete Buttigieg faces a unique burden as an out uh, presidential candidate. So we uh, 
we're covering that subject. And and finally, uh, a kind of a really sad one that needs to be mentioned, and and, and folks need to know about this. Um, but uh, Netflix is uh, revisiting uh, the trials of Gabriel Fernandez in a docu series they're doing, and this little eight-year-old boy uh, was murdered in Palmdale, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, it turned out that uh, he was uh, a case of child abuse, and he was he was beaten. Uh, and bruised and just completely, you know, he ended up dying because of it. And the principal reason was, is that his parents suspected that he was gay. So uh, that's going to be uh, in the blade. Uh, John Paul King has a piece on it. Netflix revisits uh, the trials of Gabriel Fernandez. You can pick your copy of the LA blade up at the LGBT center uh, and any of our uh, street sale boxes on Santa Monica and Hollywood uh, Boulevard and, or, please visit the Los Angeles Blade at losangelesblade.com. Excellent. And um, interesting news about Gabriel, because I wrote about him myself, and that that blog appears on evolequals.com, and I may republish that um, in conjunction with that material that's out there. Um, Absolutely tragic, horrible, horrible situation. of um, a case where parents coming down on children that they even suspect might be gay and um, committing horrible abuse as a result, which ironically feeds into um, the organization that our guest uh, Brian Bond is now the executive director of, um, PFLAG, which has to do with families and LGBTQ issues and LGBTQ issues in families. Um, so with that, I'm really pleased and thrilled um, to welcome Brian to the show. Brian, welcome. Uh, good morning, Rob. Uh, good morning, Brody. Uh, or good afternoon to some, I guess I should say, to, to be here. We're downloadable via um, uh, smartphone, so people could be listening to us yet in the middle of the night sometimes. So we welcome all of our podcast listeners. Um, Brian, um, welcome to your new job. How's it going? Well, it's going great. I, I do, sorry, Rob, I do want to uh, make one modification. I, it's actually my first year on the job, so I started a year ago. So I've got a, a whole ah. working year under my belt at this point. Uh, and and I, I do want to take uh, – uh, you, you referred to me as having been around and seen a lot. I, you, you could have just said old and uh, cut through some of that. It's like, <laughs> it's we, like wow. We okay. do not use we do not use the o word on this show. <laughs> well, but, you know, I've been around a lot. Okay. Uh, thank you. Yeah. yeah uh, before you can we say start any, though, I have any to just... cuss word you want. <laughs> you can say any cuss word you want, just not the o word. <laughs> I I I I appreciate that. I'm sure uh, my comms director will be talking with me shortly after this call. Uh 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 I do want to pile on just for a second to what the important uh, background that Brody was giving around uh, the supposed task force that that uh, our vice president is heading up. Uh, yeah, Tammy Baldwin, Senator Tammy Baldwin, was on TV yesterday a lot. Uh, she was in on the briefings and the hearings, and she basically said they are wholly unprepared. Uh, for what is coming, uh, I, you know, to the point of, as you so, have seen over the last many months, uh, uh, the shakeup and destruction, if you will, of the national security team. There was a component within that team that would be dealing with a pandemic. Uh, they are not there. Uh, 
that is a problem. Uh, you know, funding levels have been cut, uh, and as Brody said, money moved uh, to help with the wall, if you will. Uh, so this is this is really kind of scary. And the fact, and I think probably the biggest distinction between uh, uh, this, well, there's many, but uh, one of the distinctions between this and the previous administration, uh, I'll use the example of the, the BP oil spill. Uh, President Obama made it very clear up front that this was going to be a long-term problem that was going to take much time to solve, as opposed to having a president uh, of, of the United States now saying, oh, well, by next week we should be down to zero cases. Uh, they're totally unprepared for this, and it, it's just emblematic of, of everything they have done for the past three years. So, sorry, I just had to throw that in. No, no, no I'm glad no, you did. Totally, and, and yeah, and, and actually, while we're on the subject or, or the theme of kind of ignoring science and willfully <laughs> pulling ahead, um, you were very involved in climate change. Um, what is your perspective of what's been going on with that? Well, again, if you listen to the administration, uh, climate change isn't a problem. It's just something that may or may not be happening. Uh, I was lucky and fortunate I got to work for uh, EPA Administrator Gina McCarthy uh, in the second term as the Associate Administrator at EPA. Uh, the President made climate a priority uh, in his campaigns uh, and in the second term. Uh, he was able to move on uh, Clean Water Rule, Clean Air Act, uh, many, many rules and regulations uh, to try to um, uh, candidly protect our public health and to save this planet. Uh, obviously, there's the Paris Agreement, uh, which we are now out of. Uh, the president believed in leading by example. Uh, and uh, some incredible things were done, put in place. Uh, you know, he and his you know, when you put a, a coal lobbyist in charge of EPA, you can expect things to go bad, uh, and they did. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, they are rolling back regulations around chemicals and other things as well. So it's not uh, a good place. I feel horrible for the the amazing um, public servants that are at the EPA. Everything that is happening now uh, goes against the grain of the mission of the organization of the Agency for Public Health and what those employees are, are there for. The only um, bright spot that I can see in all this is that industry as, as a whole is moving ahead. Uh, They're going to more efficient, cleaner, you know, carbon neutral, carbon free uh, uh, tools. Uh, and, and honestly, it's probably about the, the bottom line, the dollar. So despite what he is doing, uh, what this administration is doing. Mm. Um, industry and, and companies are moving forward. Uh, this is just complicating that process. Um, I don't know if that that helps a little bit there, a little, gives a little bit of background. No, absolutely. Um, good, Brady. Well, one of the things that, you know, um, we look at with this administration, of course, is how, you know, dysfunctional, this particular White House is. Um, for our listeners, uh, Brian worked in the Obama White House, uh, public engagement and policy under Valerie Jarrett, who was a senior domestic advisor to President Obama. Um, so Brian was pretty well versed in, you know, the machinations of the West Wing. I think the problem that we're seeing here 
is that there's a lack of understanding, and, and Brian, I think you would probably agree with this, uh, of how just one wheel out of the cog of government, uh, especially if it's intentional, as is often the case with this president, uh, can actually throw the entire system off balance. And once that happens, it becomes very difficult and unwieldy, as we're seeing with the coronavirus uh, outbreak and, and things like that. Um, which, which brings me to kind of to, if you don't mind, uh, so some of our listeners, um, you were heavily uh, invested uh, and in full transparency to, uh, to our listeners. I first met Brian uh, uh, when he was an Obama White House official. Uh, I was introduced to him uh, by a mutual friend of ours uh, who is the executive director of Pride at Work, Jeremy Davis, a union official with AFL-CIO. Um, Brian, take a look at the state of LGBT rights. You, you, you worked on uh, Don't Ask, Don't Tell. You worked on Don't on some other issues. We look at the Trump administration. It's been wholly and totally antagonistic towards the LGBTQI community, regardless of what they claim. Um, the trans military service ban is only one glaring example, but the rollback of workplace protections, the rollback of you know, trans rights, uh, you know, it just seems to be. And, of course, this latest effort uh, where we're targeting, um, you know, trans kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of give us an overview of where you're looking at it from, say, you know, a former White House official to where you're sitting now at PFLAG, because obviously, you know, your constituency now are parents, some of whom have trans kids who are scared to death because this has become a problem. So I'll just turn the I'll turn it over to you at this point. Sure, uh, and that's that's a uh, that's a lot. <laughs> uh, uh, I'm not sure quite where to start on that. Um, I yeah, you know, obviously I'm extremely proud of of what President Obama uh, did during his eight years in office. Uh, uh, and you know, it, it, it at some time in meetings when policy discussions were happening, uh, uh, sometimes my hand was the last one to be able to go up just because there were so many people in the room who actually wanted to move the ball forward. And clearly that's not a situation uh, we are in now. Um, you know, I, I think, um, but I think, let me just use this as an example. So later today, uh, I will be at Occidental College for an Obama Fellows uh, luncheon uh, myself, uh, uh, Robin McGee from Get Equal, uh, uh, Joe Salmonese from HRC, and others. Uh, you know, this is the 10th anniversary of, of Don't Ask, Don't Tell uh, repeal uh, later this year. And, you know, things, while government moves slow, uh, things work when you have a good inside and outside game uh, and when you have a um, – you have to have an executive and then leadership that, that want to make those changes. Uh, and that's kind of not where we are right now. Uh, uh, we're playing a lot of defense uh, right now. I think one of the things that uh, didn't come up so far in, in with this plethora of, of anti-LGBTQ plus bills going on at the state level, uh, you know, we also have you know, the Supreme Court. Uh, which uh, will have a huge impact on our lives. Right now, there's there's a case uh, that will come out by June or before 
uh, around workplace discrimination uh, and our belief that Title VII of the mm -hmm. Civil Rights Act covers us, uh, two around uh, gender identity and one around sexual orientation. That will have a, a significant impact uh, on uh, our lives, you know, especially uh, it, it just will have a significant impact. And some of it is out of our control. Uh, we can help create the narrative around that. The, the ultimate goal or the ultimate prize, if you will, is people getting behind uh, the Equality Act and, and getting that through Congress and passed by a president but to do, or signed by a president. Uh, to do that, you obviously have to have a president who's supportive. Uh, you have to have a supportive House, which we do, uh, uh, led by the amazing Speaker, uh, and we need to have a new Senate. Uh, so there's a there's both a current need, if you will, around support and and defending uh, the community, but there also has to be a long game here of how do we move to the next level. Does that make sense? I'm not sure if I'm yeah, it does. I'm not sure if yeah, I'm answering no, you your question. No, no, you you did. Oh, yeah. Rob, go ahead. Totally. Yeah, um, Brian, I want to I want to kind of uh, you mentioned the the O word. And we're, I want to uh, kind of leverage off of that a little bit and change it more to the experience word. Um, your lifetime and your activism has spanned, you know, <laughs> the whole historical or much of the historical LGBTQ timeline itself um, it, with a lot of significant things. I mean, you were obviously a young man when Ronald Reagan took office. Um, you were the field director um, in Missouri for the Clinton-Gore campaign. Um, obviously, you progressed into the Obama administration, and now you're living through <laughs> the, the reign of the Trump administration. Um, so you've seen Don't Ask, Don't Tell go into effect, come out of effect, you know, the, the AIDS crisis, and, and now the, um, the coronavirus our coronavirus crisis. What is your perspective over all of that? Where were the the pinnacle moments in your, your view, the heartbreaks, and what are your hopes? Well, and I think um, I'm going to take this back to PFLAG just a little bit, which is part of why I, I wanted to work uh, with this amazing organization. Uh, you know, I grew up in a rural area. Uh, on a farm, uh, I was literally more comfortable with my 2,000-pound steer than I was with my peers in school. Growing up, uh, suicide uh, was a option for me for many years. Uh, uh, yeah, I was fortunate, more fortunate. I'm a, I'm a, I believe in the glass. The glass is half full. I'm, I'm more fortunate than many. Uh, the first person I came out to uh, was a priest, <laughs> uh, and um, oh. The, uh, I basically said, I'm going, I think I'm going to go to hell, and I'm going to lose my family. And his response, um, it's probably one of the most impactful moments of my life, uh, his response was, you're not going to go to hell, but you're going to want to move because you're not going to be happy here. And, um, you know, again, I realize I'm way more blessed than many in that conversation. It could have gone really bad. Uh, but it it didn't. You know, I'm I am uh, I, I won't use the O word, but to your word of being around a while, 
uh, you know, I also um, I remember when when Harvey Milk was murdered, and watching that on TV, I was a total news nerd and political nerd, and 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 I knew at that point I was gay, and and it's like, oh my God, this out amazing elected official in San Francisco just got shot, and in my mind, because he was gay. And so that was um, a little horrifying, along with living in southwest Missouri. Um, probably one of the biggest impacts in my journey, if I could, uh, actually was um, Andy Tobias's book, Best Little Boy in the World. Uh, and it's kind, of mm-hmm. a, it's kind of a funny story just because I was working, I was out of college, and I was working for a very conservative Democratic congressman, uh, and I drove two and a half hours into St. Louis uh, and went to, like, you know, basically wearing a cap over my head into a, a, a bookstore. And I found Andy's book. Uh, I um, put it in the trunk of my car under the tire in case I was in a wreck and somebody <laughs> would find that book. Uh, I got back to Jeff City, Jefferson City. I read the book in two days, having hid it under, you know, my couch uh, and then once I read it, I burnt it in my fireplace so that nobody would ever find it. Uh, that book helped change my life. Uh, and But the fear uh, that I lived in of being exposed, uh, uh, I didn't, as I began to be more involved in politics, uh, I, I just, I did not want, myself or other kids uh, to have to live that way. And, and sadly, in many places, that same scenario might exist. Um, I'm getting a little bit off the beaten path there, but um, I just felt like it was important to give the context of, of how I, the lens mm-hmm. I uh, look at this from. And I've been lucky having, to your point, uh, been involved in a lot of political discussions. And, and I and politics is not the only way to make change, but it is an important component of making change. And in my early years in politics, it was, you know, it was um, the words at that point, gay and lesbian, you know, were basically whispered at meetings. Uh, you know, you, you had brave people like, uh, these will be names from the past, but Gene O'Leary and Rick Stafford who uh, were on the Democratic National Committee. I believe Gene O'Leary was the first open LGBT person to sit on the executive committee of the National Party. Uh, Gene, of course, was from here in L.A., and Rick was from uh, Minnesota. Uh, I did see the sausage making around uh, when President Clinton, when, when Don't Ask, Don't Tell, was instituted, uh, and it just left a mark on me of the importance of of being at the table. Uh, Shirley Chisholm has this line: uh, if, you, if they don't give you a seat at the table, bring a folding chair. And and I can't tell you the number of times over my life uh, I have seen, and it's way better now. Uh, I, I mean, a thousand times better. But you know, the number of meetings where the words gay or lesbian or LGBT were whispered and or just part of a conversation. No, we need, deserve a seat at the table. And um, so 
that's kind of driven my uh, those, those kind of pieces have driven my belief in uh, being part of the political process. Again, not sure I answered your question. No, but. A, yeah, yeah, no, no. It was an amazing perspective, and I totally relate to you hiding the book and then burning it. And you know, yeah, that was that was the experience. Absolutely. Um, when when as you were evolving and, and involved in the process, um, what what was your springboard from the Clinton years to the Obama years? I mean, hmm. was uh, how did you ride that arc? So, um, yeah, David Mixner uh, both um, was a, a model for me uh, uh, from what I saw him and, and many others do to, to show the power of the purse, if you will, to, to bring us to the table. Uh, uh, then has that kind of process evolved? Okay, we helped get you in office. Now, what are you going to do for us? Uh, obviously, things went um, a little askew uh, with Don't Ask, Don't Tell. Uh, some of it was timing. Uh, some of it was we, as a community, probably did not have the infrastructure we needed to be able to push back that, we're, that people were so effectively able to do uh, uh, during the repeal. Of don't ask, don't tell. Um, so there were lots of learning curves uh, along mm-hmm. that process. Uh, I actually, um, at a certain point, uh, I, I, I left the DNC, the Democratic National Committee, uh, in after uh, President Clinton was reelected uh, to run the Gay and Lesbian Victory Fund, uh, which is one of the joys of my life, and I still think it is one of the most important organizations out there today. Uh, uh, because, you know, again, back to Shirley Chisholm, you know, we shouldn't have to bring a folding chair. We should have our own at the table. I mean, you know, I'm sitting here in L.A. right now. I've been based out of D.C., but, you know, there's such amazing um, stalwarts that started the process out here, you know, the Sheila Kuehls of the world, uh, the Carol Migdens, the Mark Winnows, and, uh, you know, the Christine Kehoe's, you know, like back in the day who were who, who were – uh, our voice at the table. So the, uh, the transition for me was to go from, I, I guess, from insider, if you will, uh, to advocate uh, and, and advocating mostly for ensuring that we are electing LGBTQ plus individuals uh, to sit at those policy tables where our lives are being discussed. So just having one legislator in a conversation in a in a Nebraska where there is a legislator now, uh, in Georgia where there are legislators, I, I, they can't stop everything, but they can help change the narrative. Right. Um, you brought up some really fascinating stuff there. Uh, and one thing that occurred to me while you were um, describing it was that a lot of our, the attacks against the LGBTQ community happen in areas where we don't at the time have infrastructure. For example, the the George W. Bush campaign that rode um, very heavily on um, anti um, same sex marriage um, hit states that had absolutely no organization even for same sex marriage. There was no advocacy for it in these states, and already they were hitting it with this you know constitutional amendments 
to prohibit it um, where we had no power to argue or, or to organize against it. And I feel like we may be in a position like that with what Brody described at the top of the, the hour about these um, pieces of legislation that are happening in state houses that are anti-trans and um, attacking families that have trans kids. Um, so my question is, um, is that the situation now in your view? And also specifically to transgender people, are they, are their folding chairs set up? Are they at our tables enough? So that's a good question. To, to the first part, you know, I think Rebecca Isaacs and, and the, um, there, there is now a, a network of, of, of state equality federations across the country that, that learn from best practices, that share information that, you know, there, there are obviously various levels. Uh, it's just a lot of attacks going on right now. So it's just overwhelming. I mean, you, you know, you have people like Nadine Smith in Florida who, who is just a behemoth when it comes uh, to, to pushing back. And you saw one of the bills in Florida – uh, uh, around, I believe it would have made it a felony for uh, a doctor to provide uh, treatment to a minor, uh, uh, hormone treatment to a minor. Uh, uh, you know, that is stall or should be dead for now, hopefully. Uh, but, the, you know, so you have a much better infrastructure of statewide organizations and allies uh, uh, that are able to take these on, it's just a lot. Uh, it's just a lot. Uh, we, one of our PFLAG moms, actually, uh, Jennifer Solomon, and her child went and testified in Tallahassee uh, about the impacts of what this would do. And, you know, it's from, from our perspective, where we try to lend support to, to the state equality groups, organizations, is, is to bring parents' voices to the table uh, uh, for them to tell their story. I think there's no more authentic voice than the love of a parent for their kid. And um, we, you will see, uh, we have been ratcheting that up as these attacks have been happening, and you will see it more and more uh, across the country. We have brought on two, and we'll have shortly a third field person, uh, three field coordinators, to help these chapters to get these stories out. To, to prep them when needed, uh, to, to speak to legislatures, uh, and then building out our comms team uh, to actually share those stories. Uh, and I don't mean share them in the, in the New York Times or the Washington Post, but share them in the local newspapers. So um, mm -hmm. first of all, uh, people know that real lives are at stake, real, real health is at issue. Uh, these are their neighbors, these are their friends. Uh, do they really want to go to that level of hate? Um, hope, I still believe this country is basically good and, and that we can change some of this through the narrative of storytelling. Um, Let me jump in for that for just a second, Brian, because one of the things that you just said I think is critically important. Uh, when I interviewed um, Matthew Shepard's parents early on during the entire situation, uh, and then in later years, the one theme that ran throughout that that Judy kept telling me, and, and she said she has said this to me repeatedly, is that it was the perception of Matthew as the kid next door, as someone's grandson, mm -hmm. nephew, son, and then more importantly, 
you know, going back to the legacy and roots of your organization, you know, Gene Manaford's son, who was a gay activist in New York, uh, had been badly beaten while he was distributing flyers. Okay, and that was the one thing that caused her to jump into it. So when you talk about parents, and I'm thinking of Gene, basically your founder, I'm thinking of Judy and Dennis, and I think of some of these other parents, I I think it really, that's it right there. You know, Brian, years ago, um, I was fortunate enough to interview then Speaker of the House, Tip O'Neill, and it was about 5 o'clock. Wow. In the speaker's uh, inner office, I got, you know, I'm, I'm in the shadow of the great man. And, you know, he had that thing on his desk with social politics is local. And the speaker caught me looking at it. And he leaned over, and he was just this just gregarious South Boston holy. And so he, he, he leans over, and he puts his arm on me, and he says, Brody, that's true, but I want you to remember this. Besides all politics is local, politics is the art of perception and persuasion. Now, mm-hmm. 30-some years later, Brian, I've never forgotten that. You're executive director of an organization that has such a rich legacy, okay, and you're talking about comms and moving the, and moving the ball forward and what Judy's told me and some of the, you know, our mutual friends you and I have. What do you think is the most important thing now that parents need to hear from PFLAG, particularly and under the siege we're at now? I mean, you guys are legacy for this, more so – probably quite a few and, and no, you know, insults to the rest of them, but the other LGBTQ organizations, because I think the basis for this is family. The basis for this is parents, you know, what say you? That, thank you, Brody. That's, that makes total sense. I, I do want to add a little bit to the, the, the G Manfred story. Uh, uh, so PFLAG will be 50 years old in 2023. Uh, uh, in 72, uh, to the story you were talking about, Brody, um, uh, her son, Morty, was in a, in a small march, uh, got beat up, got arrested. She saw this, and then she got a call from the police, as I understand, saying, did you know your son's a homosexual? And her response was, yes, he is, and let him go. Uh, and, and with that, you, you, we kind of, through Gene Manford, saw uh, what I call the, the ultimate community organizer and mom. Uh, in 73, when PFLAG was started, uh, she marched in the Christopher Street Liberation Day march and had a sign that said, Parents of Gays Unite in Support of Our Children. And, you know, she was getting all this applause. Morty was with her, the other moms, parents. And um, she thought the applauses were for uh, Dr. Benjamin Spock, who was right behind her. <laughs> but when she got to the end of the march, all these LGBT folks came up to her and just started hugging her and crying and um, thanking her for doing that. And and that mission uh, has been carried on uh, from that day forward. Uh, you know, I think a lot of people in our community um, think of PFLAG and they think of the parade. Uh, and, you know, they always get the largest applauses. Uh, but they're, and it's important that they're there. Uh, but there's so much more uh, that, that PFLAG parents, family, and allies do than just the parade. Um, you know, support definitely being one of them, education uh, being another component. And then third, to your point around advocacy. PFLAGers are, I would think, the, I, I think, I'm a little biased, but I think they're the most um, 
humble, uh, loving, and caring people you will you will ever meet uh, that selflessly volunteer to ensure that families can stay together and that kids, regard, regardless of their sexual orientation, gender identity, or gender expression, feel loved and supported. Uh, and I think we're at kind of a watershed moment here in this country uh, where um, there is almost a, I don't know how to word it, I, I think there's a critical mass, or we're at a pivotal point where um, parents know uh, that now is when they they have to speak out. Uh, so we're trying to best arm parents to be able to do that because I do think um, there is a um, a righteousness uh, to a parent's voice saying that my kid deserves the same thing as your kid. Uh, I, I go to um, chapter meetings, some of them in rural places, uh, and I would say, I'm just doing an anecdotal statement here, that I would say, you know, close to half of, of the parents there are there to support their trans and non-binary kids. Uh, so, you know, PFLAG has a long history in this space. PFLAG was the first national organization to affirm transgender, the transgender community and its role and in, in our need uh, within PFLAG to support the parents and the kids. Uh, so that's lifting those voices, telling real stories, telling what the impact is, um, it, it's going to be a crucial part of the narrative uh, over the next several years. Um, I think likewise, uh, in communities of color, uh, we need to be able to do a, a, a better job uh, of reaching people where they are. Uh, uh, you know, also, kids are coming out way younger than when I did. Uh, and so those parents are young. They're on a work track. Uh, they're a soccer track. You know, they, they've got a lot going on. How are we best? supporting them, providing them with, with what they need from either a support side or an education side or advocacy side. And then because of kind of where I grew up, I, and, and this is where, you know, to your point on the Alabama bill and so where some of these others are in Missouri, my home state, you know, I, I refuse to accept uh, that parents have to choose between their kid and their God. Uh, it may maybe means they have to find a new church. I don't know, but, you know, faith is very real to many people, and it has left some incredible scars uh, on our community, but there's still a space there for us to um, to educate and to support. You know, you've got churches like the United Church of Christ that has been there for quite some time. You've got, obviously, the Methodists who are just now, um, um, you know, they're coming apart over this issue. Uh, love will ultimately win out here, uh, but we need to be able to be there uh, to support those individuals. And, and I don't want to lose sight of the ally part. Um, we do an incredible amount of work through our Straight for Equality program, uh, Straight for Equality program to, um, to support ERG groups that are wanting to, and management in major corporations that are wanting to, to move the ball forward because happy employees stay there. And they're more creative, and they and they produce, and and they and they make bottom line better, uh, you know. But at the same time, you've got companies like Verizon, uh, which came out for the Equality Act. So, and and many have. So, you know, there's it kind of goes back to when we were talking a little bit about climate change. You know, industry is a key component in, and I know some in our in our world are a little anti-corporate, but. Um, 
industry and corporations are also part of the, the point of the spear of moving equality forward. Fantastic, Rob. Yeah. Um, Brian, can you go into a little bit of how PFLAG is structured? I mean, you, the, the, the objectives are, are incredible. How, how, what is the infrastructure like through the country that, that will help get all that um, support accomplished? Sure. So there are uh, a little over 400 chapters around the country. They range, you know, very small to to behemoths like LA, which has uh, uh, you know has satellite multiple satellite chapters, some Latinx chapters, uh, uh, to to very small chapters in 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 places you wouldn't uh, expect. And it's interesting in some of the smaller towns, um, smaller communities I've been to. The uh, PFLAG chapter is not just a support uh, component for parents uh, uh, on their journey with their kids coming out. It's also a, a support mechanism for the LGBTQ plus community in that space, in that, in that community. Uh, so um, it's PFLAG, most of the chapters, almost 99% of them are run by volunteers. Uh, these are just dedicated LGBTQ plus folks, moms, dads, allies, who run these meetings? Um, it, it, you know, it's uh, um, it's just incredible to 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 go to these. And I'll give an example. We um, one of my first meetings, uh, my first two meetings. One was in in Arkansas, and the other was out here in California. But it was in San Gabriel Valley, at our API specific chapter. And um, a people sit in a, in most places they sit in a circle somewhat like uh, people who may be familiar with an AA meeting I'm 13 years sober so I'm used to that model uh, uh, this um, this woman came in uh, she sat down she didn't know anybody at the meeting she found it online uh, pflag.org uh, she found a meeting location uh, and she was she sat down and she said uh, in a, in broken English um, she said, I'm a, a immigrant. I'm from Korea. Uh, I'm a conservative Christian. I have a trans kid. I need help. Within a minute, there were two moms from that chapter over talking to her in Korean, trying to give her support. And I just, I, I walked out of that meeting, and, and I know we can't do this everywhere. You know, there's just it's a big country, but I walked out of that meeting thinking, how brave is this mom to walk into a room, to kind of step out of her cultural comfort zone, to, to share this information because she loves her kids so much, she needs help. And, and PFLAG was there for her. And I'll never forget that moment. Um, if anything keeps me up at night, it's how do we do that everywhere? And we can't, but we're trying. Um, but that, that was just a moment I, I will never forget. Similar to that, when I was in Arkansas, uh, uh, there was a gentleman that came into the meeting and sat down, and he told a story of his child. Um, and I believe he one of the words he used was effeminate. Um, and uh, but talk, talked about how much he wanted to support his kid, and this is in Arkansas, and and he looked like I grew up in that area, so he looked like somebody that came out of that area. So I'll just leave it at that. Uh, and he just looked like this tough guy and all that. So I 
when the meeting was over, I pulled into the site and I said, I just want to thank you for being here and for what you're doing for your kid. And his response was really simple. He said, I love my kid. I want to help him any way I can. And those kind of stories happen all over the country. Um, and back to the point, you know, of sharing these kinds of stories with people's faces as opposed to me just kind of giving generalities, that's one of the strengths of how I think we will be able to um, move the ball forward is being able to lift up those stories to be able to tell for a couple reasons. One, it tells somebody else in that community, if, if they're in a similar journey, that they're, they're not alone. It tells queer kids in those areas they're not alone and that there are there they are loved but it also then moves policymakers hopefully at some point even the the hardest one to realize you are impacting human lives and i know i'm putting a little bit of rose colored glasses on that make no mistake we're in a fight for our freaking lives right now and i guarantee you my parents <laughs> here at p flag are our fierce advocates that will fight tooth and nail to make sure their kids have the same rights as every other child in this country. There you go. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, um, Brian, first of all, congratulations on your 13 years. I am coming up on 38 years nice. um, sober, so I, I get it, yeah. Um, but um, I want to thank you so much for everything you do, everything you've done. Um, you, your career is vast and um I think we're all indebted to you in terms of all the work you've done. Uh, we're down to our last five minutes. What what haven't we asked you that we should be asking? So first of all, I just want to thank you both for having me on on, the, on this today, and and I want to thank folks in the audience who are listening. Uh, I would say if if you if you're on a journey, or if your parents are on a journey, or or you need support. Uh, check out our website, pflag.org. Uh, I would say if, if you believe in our mission and what we're doing and you're not, uh, go to our website, pflag.org, and help us financially. Follow us on social media at pflag. And then I, since we're, we didn't talk much about this, but back to something Brody said early on on the Williams Institute on, on eligible voters. To his point, one in five eligible voters are not registered. Just keep this little fact in mind. In 2016, two votes per precinct would have changed the outcome of the Michigan results. Five votes per precinct would have changed Pennsylvania's outcome. Every freaking vote matters. We are at a moment where hate is incubating and growing, and the only way we're going to change this is by taking a folding chair getting a chair, getting a bucket, whatever, sit at that table. And to sit at that table, we have to vote. We have to have policymakers who will support what we're trying to do. We have to show uh, uh, the power, if you will, of our influence. And I, I can't remember the quote off the top of my head, but Harvey Milk had a, a an amazing quote that was just very simple, and it was, Basically along the lines, if we want our voices, if we want to win, if we want to be successful, we have to lift our voices, and we have to do it with our feet and with our voting. Um, you know, we have a, I, you know, I want to leave with one positive note. Uh, a, 
on on the support level, there are so many people coming to people like meetings, and and sometimes they only need it once or twice just to know that they're they're on the right path, and that their journey is going to be okay, and that their kid uh, is going to be safe. But the power of policy and our power to influence that is critical. Look what's happening in Virginia right now. Virginia is on the has passed a non-discrimination bill, uh, and they are likely uh, to, I think they are almost close to done with a ban of conversion therapy. That happens when we vote. That happens when, when we make sure our voices are heard. Uh, so it's, it's a long game narrative study or uh, narrative strategy, but it's also immediate tactics like registering and voting. Absolutely. Absolutely. Brody, yep. final word? Yeah. Uh, Brian, um, I just want to thank you for everything you've done. Uh, and, I, again, thank you for coming on and talking with us. Um, and I'd like to point out the one thing that I think that we can probably be proud of that's a seminal moment in actually all three of our lives, Brian, you, Rob, and, of course, myself, is when a nine-year-old boy gets on a stage at a political function and asks a candidate to the office of president of the United States to help mm-hmm. him come out. And that candidate is gay. But that yeah. I'm done. <laughs> Rob. Yeah, really. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you both for participating today, Brody, as always, Brian, again, for your work, uh, for joining us today. Um, you're welcome back anytime. Um, and anything we can do for PFLAG, let us know. We're happy to carry the torch for you. Um, on the podcast airwaves. I want to thank our listeners. Um, Tell your friends. uh, You can find our podcast on any smartphone under the podcast app. Just do a search for us and subscribe, please, um, and have your friends do so as well. Um, Also, uh, listen to my other show out in Santa Cruz that is uh, live broadcast on Saturday nights, 7 p.m. Pacific time, 10 p.m. Uh, Eastern Time, and you can live stream that off of www.ksco.com. Uh, for Brody and myself, uh, we will be back here again next week with some more exciting LGBTQ programming, and we look forward to speaking to you then. You've been listening to Rated LGBT Radio.